have you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to be on page 859. And as usual, if you have any questions uh, as we go through the sermon today, you can uh, open up Slido. That seemed to work last week pretty well, so we're going to do it again. Open up, uh, go to slido.com and type in RevCDA, and you can enter any questions you have into there, and we will take a look at them when we're done. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for today. Thank you for just, I don't know, I feel like it's a, there's a calm to today that feels really good. Um, I don't know what that is, but I just praise you for who you are, your goodness to us, the, the sunshine, the cool breeze, um, the grace that you show to all of us in that. I pray that you would make yourself known to us this morning through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would, um, we would encounter you in a, in a real way, that you would encourage, that you would comfort, that you would exhort, that you would rebuke. God, we are here for you, and I just pray that you would um, open our spiritual ears to hear your voice. Thank you for your word, the gift that it is to us, that we can um, put ourselves under its authority and trust that um, you know what's best for us. And I pray that you would speak to us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So I was on the uh, Johns Hopkins website this week, and I was reading about a condition that um, puts you into fight or flight mode. It increases your heart rate, your blood pressure, your immune response. Over the long term, this leads to an increased risk of depression, heart disease, diabetes, a whole other list of things. That condition was unforgiveness. On this medical website, they had a whole article about how when we take things and we hold on to them and we let ourselves grow bitter and unforgiving, it actually causes us physical harm. And funny thing, God seems to know about that and he encourages us to not do that. We are in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 6 this morning. And we read, Give, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven, or sorry, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so we're going to talk about sin and forgiveness and the gospel this morning. At this point in the prayer, there's a couple of ways that you may have come across it, a couple of ways you may have learned it. We use the Christian Standard Bible here, and it says, forgive us our debts. Um, maybe you learned it, forgive us our sins or forgive us our trespasses. There's a long translation history there that we're not going to get into. But 
The fact is, when we talk about sin, sin is a debt. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, we know we're talking about sin, even though it says debt, because Jesus gives us some commentary in verses 14 and 15. He says, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. So Jesus is talking about sin here. He's asking that that God would forgive us of our sins just as we forgive others of the way that they've sinned against us. And the language he uses in the prayer is debt. Sin isn't always imagined as debt in the Scripture. Sometimes sin is talked about more like a disease. Sometimes it's spoken of as an enemy. But sin is always an attack on God. To commit a sin is to act or speak or think in a way that is out of alignment with God's character and therefore the very direction of the universe. If you've ever rented a car before uh, at, a, at, a, at an airport car rental place, they have those spikes on the ground where if you roll over them a certain direction, everything's fine. But if you roll over them the wrong direction, everything's not fine, right? Like it punctures the tires and it's to prevent people from stealing cars. And that's what sin is like. There is a direction that the universe is intended to go based on who God is and the kind of uh, world that he's made. And every time we decide to go a different direction, we're going against the very grain of the universe into the spikes, into our tires. This is why when we talk about repentance, God's word always calls us to repentance. Repentance means to change our mind, to turn around. Cornelius Plantinga, who is a philosopher, says this about sin. It says, the Bible presents sin by way of major concepts, principally lawlessness and faithlessness, expressed in an array of images. Sin is missing of a target, wandering from the path, a strain from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. Even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. Sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. So sin is a major problem in the scriptures. It is the, one of the major problems that we live under. And sin isn't just the effect of doing wrong. Sin isn't just something that happens when we make a choice. Sin is something that's actually, in some sense, in the air, In Romans 5, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. 
So very interestingly, what Paul says is that in some way, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, sin as a force was unleashed into the universe. And sin brings about death. Later on in Romans 6, Paul says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Sin has an energy to it, and it wants something from us. Last year, we were adding a peninsula in our kitchen and uh, with some cabinets and a countertop, and, and the outside of the cabinets was facing our living room, so we, we covered it in, in shiplap because... That's the thing. And uh, I bought this uh, shiplap wood and pine, and I took it out into my backyard, and I have a paint sprayer. And I filled it up with white paint, and I was really, really careful to, like, stand back and, and spray the right way, and I made sure that everything was, was, was clear, and, 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 and I, I, I did a really good job of, of, of protecting myself. And I got done, and I went in the house, and Joanna goes, there's white paint all over your head. Because, see, I, I couldn't protect myself from the paint. It was just everywhere. These tiny little droplets of white paint were floating through the air, and I couldn't get into a situation where it didn't affect me. And this is what sin is like. Sin is in the air, it is in the world, and we cannot get away from it. However we want to imagine it getting on us, we are all covered in it. And so this sin, this debt, this is something that we all owe. And this is easy to see when someone sins against you. Right? When someone harms you, it's very easy to go, you know what? I didn't like that. I didn't deserve that. They wronged me. And this is why it's silly to say that there's no such thing as sin. And sometimes I, I talk with people who are uncomfortable with the idea that there is sin, that we would be judged, that we would be held accountable for things that we do. And maybe this morning, maybe you feel that way. Maybe you don't like the idea of sin. It doesn't feel very modern. And I understand the impulse that, like, the world we live in, it just doesn't seem like sin has a place. We're just, maybe that's something that we've moved beyond. But this week, I, I looked on the news. I read an article about a, a Ukrainian mother and her four-year-old, and, and she said, sometimes I turn the volume of the TV up louder so she doesn't hear the shelling. I think that's... That's pretty wicked that there's a, a little child whose mother is turning up the TV so that the little girl doesn't hear the bombs falling around her. I also read about the, the, the Parkland shooting trial going on where um, 17 people were murdered in a school. One of the parents, Anthony Montal Montalto, said, where... Our house was once filled by laughter. Now there's a deafening silence broken only by the deep sighs and soft sobbing that accompany what used to be the happy memories of my children playing. And you read about that, and at least for me, something in me goes like, there, there's something incredibly wrong about that, isn't there? 
There's something incredibly wrong about the fact that these parents will never see their child again because of the wicked action of that shooter. There's something wrong about the fact that thousands, maybe millions of innocent people in Ukraine are fighting for their lives and fleeing their homes because of what is going on in Russia. And so we're very privileged people to think like we can get away from sin, that, that we can be people that say, well, sin isn't really a thing and nobody does anything really badly and it's, it's just all, everybody's fine. No, it's absurd to think that there's no such thing as sin. There are unspeakable acts of wickedness that take place in our world all the time and our hearts, and we know this, they, they cry out for justice. But this becomes problematic, though, when the spotlight is turned on us, doesn't it? Maybe we don't kill with bombs and guns, but we are no less guilty of sin. Francis Buford says, it's what a murder has in common with telling a story at a dinner party at the expense of an absent mutual friend, a story which you know will cause pain when it gets back to them but which you tell anyway because it's just very, very funny. Have you ever been in that situation where you know it's not a big deal, but you know what you're going to do, it's going to hurt someone, and maybe they won't find out. But if they did find out, it would do them damage. Commenting on this, Wesley Hill says, one of these things may take a life, a murder, but the other takes a piece of a soul. And this is, this is kind of the bedrock of what sin is doing. And we fight to ignore this, that, that our choices, when they go against the grain of God's universe, they do real damage to people that we harm. Whether we're dictators wielding weapons of war or troubled individuals wielding weapons of war, or whether we're just unconcerned about the feelings of the people that we are in relationship with. When we do people harm, we see sin in action. But what's worse than that, what's worse than the debt that we owe to everyone that we harm, is that when we sin, God is the one who is the most offended. Because see, God is the most personally invested in the ones being harmed. You and I, the, everyone in this, I, we, were, um, we were at Art on the Green yesterday. And uh, just, I just love looking out on this sea of people and thinking like every single one of these people is made in the image of God. I don't know them. I don't know their stories. I don't know if they know their creator, but the bottom line is every single one of these people is special. Every single one of these people has inherent value. And when we sin against others, the one that is primarily affected by that, even more than that person, is God himself. I was thinking about it this way, and this is not a perfect example, but um, imagine, imagine a dog who's been abused. We don't know. I mean, everybody thinks their dog is like a person. Um, 
But we don't really know how much self-awareness and intelligence dogs have. I mean, they're, they're nice, they're smart, they're good. But to abuse an animal, that's a, that's a big deal. But I kind of feel like it's a bigger deal for us than it is even for the animal. Right? An abused animal deals with the situation that it's been brought up in. But we as human beings look at that abused animal and go like, how dare you harm someone that is innocent? This creature that did nothing deserving of this. And our righteous indignation when animals are abused wells up, I think, probably more than it even does in the animals themselves. And when God looks at his creation, these men and women and children who he loves, who he made in his image, his righteous indignation is so much greater than even ours is when people are sinned against. And deep down, I think we all know this. We have a sense of shame and guilt when we do something that's wrong. Even unless we've seared our minds to, to it really badly, if we tell a little white lie at work, we know that it's wrong. We cut somebody a little deep. We know that it's wrong. We have a, we have a label for the condition where this internal sense of guilt and shame is broken. It's called sociopathy. It's the, it's the condition where you just don't have a conscience. You don't understand anymore. But the vast majority of us, we know this. We know that when we sin against others, that we're doing something wrong. But it doesn't feel good, does it? To acknowledge this thing in us, this, to bring it up, to, to take it out of our hearts and look at it to admit it to others, it feels really bad. But the thing is, and this is where God is so good and so gracious, is that thing inside of us, that guilt, that shame, that, that the conscience that we have is the very tool that God has built into us to remind us to turn back to Him. Ambrose of Milan in the fourth century wrote, shame indeed there is when each makes known his sins. But that shame, as it were, plows his land, removes the ever-recurring brambles, prunes the thorns, and gives life to the fruits which he believed were dead. So as Jesus teaches us in this prayer to confess our sins, to seek forgiveness for this debt... It's good news because while the sin that we live in, the sin that we absorb, the sin that we commit is this unbearable debt against God, while it wears away our planet and our relationships and our souls and keeps us out of relationship with God, confession of sin, turning away from sin, repentance from sin is a step into forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. So how does this work? Forgiveness absorbs debt. 
Think about financial debt. When I was, um, I don't know, I think I was probably 17, my parents bought me a 1995 S10 Chevy Blazer. It was two-door, it was red. It's first person out of my friend group that had a remote keyless entry. It was super cool. And uh, I love that car. They bought it for me, sort of. Because as soon as they bought it for me, I had to start making payments back to them for it. And my dad kept a paper ledger of, of what the car cost, and every time I made a payment, and it was just, he, he kept really good track of how much money I owed him. But a few years later, Joanna and I got married, and my parents gave me an envelope. And in that envelope was my dad's ledger for the car. And I still owed several thousand dollars for the car, but on that ledger was written, paid in full. My uh, Chevy Blazer was given to me as a wedding gift. My parents forgave my debt. But where did that money go? Did it just disappear? Out of the however many thousand dollars they spent up front for that car that they were slowly getting paid back by me, the remainder didn't just disappear when they forgave the debt. They had to absorb that debt themselves. They had to take a loss to give me that car as a gift. And Jesus seems to be telling us that sin and forgiveness, in some sense, works in the same way. He tells a story in Matthew 18, which is fairly long, but we'll read it. Peter comes and he approaches him and asks him, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? And for some background, Peter uh, had been taught by his religious leaders growing up that when someone sins against you, you need to forgive them three times. And so Peter thought being, you know, Jesus is so gracious and kind and good, Peter's going to shoot for the fences here and say, what if I forgave him seven times? It's more than twice what everybody else says I should forgive. And Jesus says, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. Jesus is basically saying every time. Then he goes on, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything that he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
Because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. So this story that he tells about these servants and this master is all about money, right? The, the, the first servant owes the t- what the text says, 10,000 talents. Now, this is a lot of money. It's, uh, some historians have said that this is probably more money than the entire Roman Empire had at the time. It's, it's the equivalent of us saying like a zillion dollars. It's almost ludicrous that this servant would owe this amount of money, but yet this is the situation. He owes so much money, and he begs, he says, don't worry about it, I will pay it back. And again, there's no way that this servant is going to pay this back. And the master is gracious, and he forgives it. But who loses out in that? The master does. The money that the master put out is now not going to come back. The master has to absorb that debt. And then the servant goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him about three months' wages, a reasonable number, and will not forgive him his debt. He's unwilling. And Jesus, Jesus makes up this story that is simultaneously down to earth, kind of funny, and also terrifying to illustrate the idea that forgiveness is like absorbing debt. We might be tempted to say that forgiveness cancels debt, but that's not really true. Like I said, when I, when I was given the rest of my car when I got married, that debt didn't just go away. It was taken on by my parents. If you pull out of this parking lot today and back into someone else's car, two, one of two things can happen. You can either pay for the damage that you've done to the car or that person can say, hey, don't worry about it. But if they forgive you for what you've done to them, then they still have a fender bent out of shape on their car, right? And if they want that fixed, they're the ones that are going to have to pay to have it fixed. And when we start talking about sin, sin is expensive, and there is always a cost to forgiveness. Tim Keller writes, forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who harmed you but it must be recognized that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. When we forgive, someone always absorbs the debt because someone is always harmed. You can absorb the harm or you can turn it back on the person that harmed you. So what does forgiveness look like? What does it mean to forgive? Keller has a list of of different things, and I'm going to draw on his writing here. The first thing is, when you forgive, you refuse to get even. Cutting remarks, bringing up past injuries, being demanding and controlling because deep down you think they still owe you, avoiding them or being cold towards them, 
When you forgive, all that's off the table. Forgiveness is also refusing to gossip about it. When you forgive, it's over. You don't go tell your other friends about what they did to you. And thirdly, maybe most difficult of all, forgiveness means that you refuse to indulge ill will in your heart. You don't continually replay the tapes of the wrong that was done to you in your imagination, continuing to keep the sense of loss and hurt fresh in your mind. I don't know if you, have, if you resonate with that, but, but just the idea that like there's something twisted and wicked, but also kind of comforting to hold a grudge, isn't there? To just, just kind of hold it in your heart and, and play with it like Play-Doh or something and squish it and squeeze it and rehearse what they said and, and how you would have said something differently. And I can't believe that. And they're just so this and that. And, and we just almost like to feel bad. Forgiveness means you give that up. There's no more of that. What is forgiveness not? Forgiveness is not a feeling. Your feelings might be the opposite of forgiveness. That's why doing the work of forgiveness is so difficult. Forgiveness is an act of the will. Forgiveness is not pretending. It's not saying it's not a problem or it's, it's okay. Sometimes when we take offense to something, it really is okay. And we get riled up over tiny things, but real sin done against you is painful and it deserves to be acknowledged as such. Forgiveness is not excusing. The great bulk of sin that I think we commit against one another should be forgiven quickly and the relationship restored, but there is a significant kind of sin that greatly breaks trust and deeply harms relationships and it takes a lot of work to get through that. It's not something that you just sweep under the rug. And forgiveness is also not the same as trusting. If significant harm and mistrust has developed in a relationship, it is perfectly right and good to seek out godly, impartial counsel, to set up protective boundaries. Forgiveness does not mean protecting someone from the consequences of their sin in a case of abuse or theft or embezzlement or longstanding patterns of dishonesty. Sometimes, That even means bringing law enforcement into a situation. We can still forgive in that circumstance because forgiveness means letting go of it, not holding on to it, not letting us, not letting it control us anymore. But forgiveness is hard, right? I know we we could all probably tell stories of relationships that have gone wrong and and just the, the idea of forgiveness just seems so challenging, so difficult, so unachievable. And it might be easier to just go like, well, what if we just don't forgive? Can not do all of that stuff. But that's the paradox of forgiveness. Even though forgiving a person that has harmed you means absorbing that harm into yourself, not forgiving them is actually more damaging to you in the long run. We call this bitterness. On this, Keller writes, you can remain bitter towards someone only if you feel superior, if you are sure that you would never do anything like that. To remain unforgiving means you are unaware of your own sinfulness and need of forgiveness. There's a certain self-centeredness when we are unwilling to forgive. I was reading about some... um, 
some cases of, of lead poisoning in the military that have been cropping up lately. And lead poisoning, is, I, don't, I mean, I, I don't know much, but from what I can tell, it's, it's hard to diagnose because it's a bunch of really weird symptoms. And I was, I was reading the story of this one uh, decorated soldier who um, one of the doctors suggested that maybe he was just faking it because he wanted to get discharged. He was super offended by that because he had served multiple tours overseas. And, and they finally figured out that he had chronic lead poisoning. And the reason he had chronic lead poisoning is because he had handled and fired thousands and thousands and thousands of bullets, little toxic lead bullets. And the very act of him training for and carrying out a, an activity designed for his own protection in the short run was killing him in the long run. And it's similar when we do not forgive, when we hold on to bitterness because we think we're protecting ourselves. We're using the tools that we have at our disposal to shield ourselves from pain, from harm, and yet in the long run, those very things that we think are keeping us safe are the things that are killing us. We use the phrase, someone living rent-free in your head. You ever feel that way? You're, you just can't stop thinking about this person. I've also heard it said that bitterness is the poison that you drink in the hopes that your enemy will die. And even with, even with the understanding that the hard work of forgiveness is better than holding on to unforgiveness, sometimes forgiveness seems impossible. How could we possibly muster up the strength and the ability to do such a hard work? And this is where the good news of Jesus comes in. Because according to this prayer that we prayed, our forgiving and God's forgiving are linked. Jesus phrases this line of, a, of the prayer in a very clever way. We are calling on, we're called to ask God for forgiveness of our sins because we are people who are forgiving others. And it's sort of a pretzel, but I think Jesus did it on purpose because it shapes our understanding in some specific ways. Praying this prayer makes us examine whether or not we actually forgive others. It's pretty embarrassing to, to pray, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors when we recognize that we aren't walking in forgiveness ourselves. John Calvin says, if we retain feelings of hatred in our hearts, if we plot revenge and ponder any occasion to cause harm, and even if we do not try to get back into our enemy's good graces, by this prayer we entreat God not to forgive our sins. It's tricky of Jesus. We're actually asking God not to forgive our sins if we are not forgiving people. This part of the prayer turns itself on us. And if we're practicing unforgiveness, if we're living in bitterness in a relationship, it calls us out. And for some of you this morning, maybe that's happening. You're thinking of that person, you're seeing that face that you're just always angry about. 
That person who, who anytime they do anything, you've figured out a way to explain it as duplicitous. Well, the only reason they're trying to do that nice thing is because of this other bad thing. Or you have this, this sense of just rage bubbling under the service whenever they come up. And if that's you, the voice of God is speaking. You need to forgive that person. Jesus isn't saying that we earn forgiveness by forgiving others, but he is digging at the hypocrisy that we walk in if we don't forgive. So as we pray this prayer, we need to examine whether or not we are forgiving people. Secondly, this line in the prayer reminds us that we are children of God the Father. We know that God's forgiveness comes first. All throughout the Scripture, we hear this. This is our whole basis of our ability to pray, our Father in heaven, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is how we enter into the relationship of the prayer. We have been saved by grace through faith, adopted into God's family, forgiven of our sins, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2.13 says, when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. So we are acknowledging that in our character, we are becoming people who share the character of our Father. And that God will always continue to be true to his character. And the third thing that we recognize in this prayer is that Christ absorbed our debt so that we can absorb one another's. Talking about absorbing harm and suffering and taking into yourself and the person who forgives pays the price of the wrong. It's exactly what happens at the cross. Peter says it like this, for you were called to this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Well, how? He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds... You have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter says that Jesus, instead of seeking payback for the wrongs being done to him, he absorbed the sins that were actually committed against him into himself on the cross. And he forgave us through his suffering. And that suffering, while we would never repeat what Jesus did on the cross, Peter says Jesus' suffering is an example of how we should live our lives by forgiving others. The cross of Jesus Christ is the power for all of us that have trouble forgiving. If you're thinking of the person that you are struggling to forgive, it's drawing near to Jesus that will give you what you need to do that. Maybe you're saying to yourself something like, I could never forgive them for what they did to me. 
And it might be that what they did to you was horrific. And I don't want to downplay that. But Jesus Christ died in your place on the cross for your sins. See, the truth is, you and I are responsible for killing God. The greatest sin that has ever been committed was committed against Jesus Christ. And for me to say that I will not forgive is to say that my reputation, my pain, my honor, my worth, whatever, is greater than Jesus. Because Jesus sought to forgive his murderers while he was being murdered. And so for me to stand proud in a place of unforgiveness is a dangerous place for me to be. But there's also another side to this. Maybe you're saying, you know, I know God says he forgives me for my sins, but, but I just can't forgive myself. Maybe you've done some horrific thing to others, and you struggle with the guilt and shame of that. And intellectually, you can, you can hear the words of the Scripture saying that you've been forgiven, but there's a sense in which you just have to continue to punish yourself for the wrong things that you've done. And this sounds holy and, and pious. It sounds, it sounds right to us, but it turns out to just be the same thing. It's you standing in judgment over yourself and proclaiming that your judgment is more valuable than Christ's. That Jesus' own death on your behalf might have been good enough to satisfy God, but you have higher standards and you will not be satisfied by it. And if that's you this morning, if, 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 if you feel that shame and that guilt and you just can't come to an understanding of your own forgiveness, I recognize it's probably not from a place of outward pride. You're probably not standing up and going like, yeah, I don't care about Jesus. It's probably from a place of despair, of grief over sin. I like this advice from John Chrysostom. He says, be ashamed when you sin, but don't be ashamed when you repent. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. Sin is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness. Satan has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. See, when we have an understanding of forgiveness and repentance, and turning from sin that is based in, our under, in who God is, we can freely admit, we were talking about this this morning in, in our uh, Believing Belonging class, we can be a people that are willing to admit that we're sinners specifically. Like, this is, this is the thing that I struggle with. This is how I treated that person this week. I said this, and, and I, I did that, and I need to confess that and, and turn from that and repent from that. We don't have to be people that are just constantly fine all the time, that are constantly covering up our brokenness. Not because we're proud of our sin, but because we are proud of our Savior, because Jesus has covered, Jesus has absorbed, Jesus has taken away our sin. And that shouldn't lead to more guilt and shame. It should lead to boldness to walk in Christ. 
Praying the Lord's Prayer should give us confidence in the goodness of God towards us. Keller again says, if regular confession does not produce an increased confidence and joy in your life, then you do not understand the salvation by grace, the essence of the faith. See, we are all hopelessly in debt to sin, but Jesus pays our debt. Over and over and over again, we come to him for forgiveness, and over and over and over again, he gives it to us. And this reality should motivate us to give the same grace to others. Psalm 103, verses 10 through 13, says, He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. That's good news, you guys. That wherever you are this morning, whatever state of sinfulness you find yourself in, whether you're just coming into this place feeling like it's been a normal, normal week with bumps in the road or whether you've got a burden on, around your neck that is heavy to bear, the forgiveness of Jesus is available to you always, over and over and over again. And when we practice praying the Lord's Prayer and, and prayers of confession and repentance, we are reminding ourselves that He is good And he has invited us to be forgiven every single time we sin and to walk in newness of life, unburdened, bold, to proclaim the gospel and to be at work in the world on his behalf. So let's do some questions. Would you also say forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation or turning back into the relationship? Yeah, I would. Reconciliation is different, right? I think, I think there is a, a, and I think the value of the kingdom of God is for reconciliation. I think that's the pattern that we see. I think that's what Jesus is doing to, through humanity, like, right? He's reconciling us to God, that the relationship that is broken by sin has been restored. And I always think that's a good story that is worth telling and worth pursuing, especially in the church, especially in divisions among Christians. But sometimes that doesn't work. Reconciliation is a two-way process. Forgiveness is not. I can forgive someone who is unwilling to admit that they were wrong. I can forgive someone who is no longer alive. That's a work that I am doing 
to release that. But reconciliation is different. Reconciliation requires two people that want to move back towards each other. And I think if you are in a situation where that's a possibility, even if it's a long possibility, even if it's a process that takes years and help from friends and family and and pastoral counsel and, and other resources, I think it's a worthwhile goal. But I don't think it always happens because we are still in the midst of a broken world. And that's one of the lies I think that we believe when we conflate those two terms. We think if I forgive you, then everything needs to go back to normal the way it was. And like I said, for, for most of us, the everyday sinning we commit against one another, especially in family relationships, in the church, we should be quick to forgive. But if you've been really hurt, if you've been abused, if you've been lied to, over a long period of time. Like, there's a, there's a breach of trust there that is not easy to repair. And as, as much as it takes time to build trust, it takes time to regain trust. And so we shouldn't take reconciliation and forgiveness to be the same thing. But I do think it is in alignment with the character of God to pursue reconciliation when we can. Shooter attended a black Bible study in Charleston, South Carolina, killing several members. Those who survived the incident forgave the shooter. How is this possible? Yeah. It's always interesting to me when this stuff happens in the national news. Um, another example is, is about a dozen years ago, a shooter came into an Amish school and killed a bunch of young children. And the community... Um, Uh, forgave the shooter, and then came along to support his parents, who also lived in the neighborhood. And the crazy thing is, is when this gets published in the national media, it makes people angry. Have you ever noticed that? That that whether your, whatever your news outlet is, they, they bring people on, and they're almost just upset that these people who have been so harmed would try to forgive the person that's harmed them. And it almost, it almost seems like these Christians who practice this radical forgiveness are offending the world by the way they live their lives. And they, they are, right? Like when we actually walk in a way that looks like Christ, it's offensive. People who who do not have life in Jesus do not understand that kind of forgiveness. Sure, we live in a culture where forgiveness as a kind of general idea is a good thing and it kind of greases the wheel of the society we live in to not be bitter at everyone all the time. And even, you know, John Hopkins says that we should forgive people for our blood pressure's sake. But to actually have something horrific happen to you and forgive someone is so bizarre, it becomes distasteful to the world. And I, I just think that's such an important indication that what we're doing is supernatural. 
That kind of forgiveness requires the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't just naturally come up with that kind of ability to even sometimes look at the person who has robbed us of a child or a friend or a parent or a spouse and look them in the eye in the courtroom, which there's, you, you, can, you can look up stories of this as well, and say, I forgive you and Jesus loves you. I want you to know him. That's amazing. I think that only can come through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It's one of those things where we'll be we'll be done in just a minute, but it's one of those things where you you can read about that. At least I read about that kind of thing. And I think, man, I'm envious of that kind of faith. I want to be that kind of Christian. But I also don't want anything bad to ever happen to me. And so there's a tension there, right? Like, we would pray that we would never experience that kind of pain and suffering. We would never need to be put into a position to where we would be asked by our Savior to walk in His footsteps in that way. But should that ever happen to us, oh, that we would be men and women that would represent Him well. I have a sense that if we would ever be those kind of people, that when the moment comes where things get really, really bad and we would have to step up and represent our Lord the way He calls us to, that we would, we would need to have practiced that on lower cost forgiveness beforehand. And so maybe none of us will be ever asked to, to forgive someone who did something horrific to us in that way. But the way we become more like Christ today is in every little moment of offense, we practice forgiveness to those we know, to those we love, to those we don't know. And I think that grows the ability to give out grace in our lives. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And when Jesus um, instituted the communion meal in Matthew 26, he said, uh, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, the the reality of our forgiveness is that Jesus absorbed the sin and the debt that we owed in himself on the cross. He gave his life to cleanse us from our sins. And we remind ourselves of his gift to us through the communion meal, through the bread and the cup, his broken body and his shed blood. And Christian, this morning, you are, you are forgiven as you come up and take the bread and the cup and take it back to your seat and meditate on the idea of your place in the kingdom of God, all of your sin has been dealt with. All of your sin has been paid for because of Jesus, because of who He is, because of what He's done. And if, you've, if you're listening to me this morning and you've not turned from your sin, 
you've not repented from your sin and given your allegiance to Jesus, if you're not a Christian, you can be. You can become one right now. You can trust in Christ and be forgiven. So as the band comes back up and and, and we sing, we're going to remind ourselves of one of the things that we remind ourselves of every single time we gather, that we are forgiven people. We are broken. We are guilty. But all of that has been paid for and absorbed in Christ. And so I would invite you to come and take the bread and the cup and just meditate on the the reality of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood, the sin that he took on from you, for you, and the gift of new life that he's given you as he's forgiven your sins. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.